0: Hello everyone, welcome to yet another exciting episode of the Plastic Planet podcast with myself, Dr. Riffinwe. The 1st of March is World Seagrass Day as adopted by the United Nations General Assembly. Now to raise awareness about this important ecosystem, we have with us today Project Fisto, also known as the Fondreiden Lab. They are based in Stellenbosch University and led by none other than the phenomenal Professor Sophie von der Aden. Now, Prof has over 100 publications to her name. She has over 4,000 citations and she's a mother and she leads a very dynamic team, which you will hear from in a minute. And uh, yeah, she's just amazing. She's a woman in stem of notes, and I'm so excited to be um, part of this lab today and part of this conversation, really. Um, yeah, And I have asked the team to just introduce themselves by letting us know what relationship they have with plastic. You know, are you a heavy user of plastic, are you a healthy user of plastic, or do you just simply hate it?
1: Hi, Prof, how are you? (laughs) Oh my word, I don't think I can follow on from that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Rafael. Um Yes, and thank you for hosting our podcast. Um, it's really a, a huge pleasure to be able to talk about seagrass on World Seagrass Day. Um, but I think for now you wanted us to kind of just introduce ourselves a little bit and just also talk about plastics. Yes. Um, yeah, so as Rufilwe mentioned, my name is Professor Sophie von der Heiden. I have been a seagrass researcher for a lot shorter time than I have been a molecular ecologist, so I use genetic and genomic tools to understand Yeah, marine biodiversity in southern Africa and elsewhere but from a plastics perspective um, I grew up in East Germany and from very very little we were encouraged um, and even paid to go and recycle so we would go to particularly elderly neighbors houses and flats and we would pick up their recycling so for me recycling and that you know and and the challenges around the use of plastic are, are very dear to my heart. So um, I really, really don't like plastic. We try and minimize it as much as we can, which is quite difficult in South
2: Africa, but yeah. Awesome. My side. I think everyone can tell why I'm so excited to be part of this lab. <laughs> uh, Andrew, we have uh, yeah, Dr. Andlovu next with us.
3: Yes, uh, thank you for having me. I am a postdoctoral fellow uh, here at Stonehenge University. Uh, As per my background is bioinformatics, but now I'm working on blue carbon, which I'm going to go into detail later on. Uh, My relationship to plastics, I'd like to say it's healthy, but I'm (laughs) sure people are gonna catch me on the the line. So I think I'm learning to be more responsible. Uh, So it's more on the heavy side, but I'm learning to be more responsible.
4: Nice. Next up, we have Emma. Hi, thank you for having us. So yeah, my name is Emma. I'm a second year master's student in this wonderful lab. And I am also interested in using genetic tools to describe biodiversity in our marine ecosystems. And my relationship to plastic is healthy. What are the three options again? Healthy, heavy,
2: or hated
4: healthier and then i also try to educate my parents about it i like to be very strict with them when they throw away plastic in the correct bin (laughs) beautiful (laughs) and then we have dr watson with us
5: hi thank you for having us Yeah, the newly qualified Dr. Watson, (laughs) (laughs) which is very exciting. So yeah, thank you for having us. It's great to be here. So my PhD was uh, exploring seagrass restoration in South Africa, which I'm excited to talk about later. And my relationship with plastic is healthy. I mean, I, I feel like everyone hates it, but it's so difficult to actually minimize your plastic usage. I mean, we recycle. I've got my little... Re- reusable
2: mug here <laughs> that I use all the time. Um, so yeah, that's that's my relationship with plastic. Fantastic. And then up next, we have Dr. How.
6: Hi, Rafael. Thank you for having me and inviting me onto this podcast. I was very, very excited to do this. Um, right. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow, probably the... I am the newest entry into the group, and my background is more in the genetics and genomics side of things, assessing wild uh, species to help uh, conserve and preserve them. As for my relationship with pa- uh, plastic, I, I hate it. I hate that we have to rely on it so much. I try to recycle as much as I can, but as Prof Fonda Hayden said already, it's quite difficult to do in some parts of South Africa. But that's me at least.
2: Awesome, and then we have Ben.
7: Thanks for having me. I'm Ben. I'm a first-year master's student with the lab. Um, My work so far has focused on tissue culture of seagrass, so that is essentially just growing them in the lab. I'll be speaking about that as well a bit later. Um, My relationship with plastic, I would say, is also healthy. I try to recycle as much as I can, avoid single-use plastics. I do my best, but, but as everyone has said, it is difficult. But also, as Emma said, I'm also trying to teach my mom um, what can and can't go in the recycling bin.
2: <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and then we have Tian.
7: Good
8: morning, Rafilwe. Thank you very much for having me. I've never been on a podcast before, so this is quite exciting. Um, yeah, I'm also a new member in the Fonda Hayden Lab, also uh, researching seagrass and blue carbon, which we'll also dive into later, with some cool novel techniques. Um, and I would say my relationship with uh, plastic, um, emotionally, I hate it, but physically would be a healthy relationship. also try and recycle as much as I can um, and I, I walk around with my reusable willies bag everywhere.
2: <laughs> nice. <laughs> and then last but not least, we have Aiden.
9: Um, yeah, thanks for for having us all. Um, so I'm a second year master's student in the lab, also did my honours in, in the same lab. And like Tian, I'm focusing on blue carbon mainly in my research, but I've also incorporated some restoration aspects, um, which followed on from uh, Dr. Watson, which we'll go into as well. Um, and then as to my relationship with plastic, I also hate it. Um, and I grew up in Belita along the coast of KZN, so I particularly saw a lot of impacts of plastics in the marine environment particularly. So personally, I try and minimize it as much as possible, Um, and I'd go as far as to say that I carry around like a little straw, a bamboo straw, which I (laughs) reuse, Um, so that's kind of a small way that I try and make an impact as well
2: awesome i i I love it i think as you can hear we have a treat for you guys today uh we have you know a very diverse lab and just right into that um prof can you tell us about project c Store? what does it entail only a pleasure i feel with so project
1: c store which kind of celebrates Um, seagrass and really tries to plug some of our knowledge gaps in seagrass came about in, it was, yeah, in about 2015 when I had a student come and talk to me about working on something endangered, you know, and I was lucky I was in the right place at the right time. I'd read about seagrass and how endangered it was. So I thought, well, you know what, let's do a project on seagrass. And it's really snowballed since there. I think we had our first National Research Foundation funded project granted in 2017 and that really was kind of very basic knowledge about um, South African and Southern African seagrasses because we really knew very very little, despite actually seagrass research in South Africa going back about 90 years, you know. But it's been it's been very patchy, and you kind of have these themes that kind of carry on for a few years, and then they something else comes up, and there hasn't been any kind of coherent and comprehensive research. So, Project SeaStore has been going for your oh, six seven years now yeah and we've really had i think a a really strong impact on not only understanding more about south african seagrasses but really putting seagrass research on the map globally um which is you know which has been very very exciting
2: yeah awesome i think you know um as you speak a lot of i think questions come to mind but then for someone at home who knows very little about seagrasses. Um, So if you can just give us a little bit of a background on what is the importance of seagrass? Why is it that they're important?
1: Okay well let me tell you about what seagrass actually is in the first place because lots of people if you go to in South Africa they're they're only found in estuaries In other parts of the world seagrasses are found in kind of shallow inshore coastal marine systems but essentially seagrasses are plants that have gone back to life and water so you tend to find them in very shallow kind of calm marine environments some some species you can find up to a depth of 60 meters but they really need good clear uh, water for you know as with any plant they need they, they need decent light so they are not algae nor are seagrasses kelps you know so you'll be surprised as to how many people actually don't know about seagrasses but you know we're, we're really trying to work on changing that um so in south africa we have one particular species called zostra capensis it's only found in about 37 estuaries around the coastline um and it's got such immense ecosystem services value. So it's not only important for marine creatures that live in seagrass, but it provides a, a whole host of services that people rely on, you know, from, um, from kind of keeping water nice and clean, to coastline protection, to mm-hmm. increasing the number of fishes and invertebrates that people like to eat. And so they like to fish and then to eat. Um, it's really a very kind of broad swath of ecosystem services. And you know that's, I think, an important part of our research is trying to understand what is the value of seagrasses to not only natural systems and ecosystems, but really also to humans to try and strengthen that kind of seagrass-human relationship.
2: That is amazing. I, Do you know, when I you know, think about seagrasses and prior to joining the lab, also it was not something that I thought was important. I thought it was just always there. you know, one does not think of the ecosystem services that Prof has referred to. Uh, Tian, uh, I know you work a lot on ecosystem services. And if you can tell us more about what are those and why they're important.
8: Yeah, so as Sophie mentioned, uh, seagrass... Um, has a lot of provisioning services where it provides food to our coastal communities and and all sorts of other services like coastal protection. But um, another ecosystem services or ecosystem service that's equally important um, is uh, the blue carbon uh, aspect of seagrass. And um, climate change is no secret, and we know that the carbon that we emit forms a sort of blanket around our planet. Which drives the global warming that we've been experiencing for centuries, but um, or for the last century. But uh, what if I told you that seagrass um, is a small plant living our, along our coastlines in our estuaries, and it actually aids in our fight against climate change? Uh, now, this is called blue carbon, uh, which refers to all the carbon that is uh, stored by the ocean and uh, coastal vegetated ecosystems. Now, seagrass, along with salt marsh and mangroves. Um, fall under this category of coastal um, vegetation. And they're also referred to as blue carbon ecosystems. Um, Now there's this misconception that planting trees is the solution to climate change. When in fact, when in fact blue carbon ecosystems store 30 to 40 times uh, more carbon than terrestrial forests. Seagrass alone store more than 50% of the ocean's um, carbon, despite covering less than 2% of the ocean surface. And uh, seagrass are highly productive plants and the muddy substrate they grow in creates the optimum environment for carbon storage. Now, don't get me wrong, blue carbon is no silver bullet to climate change, although it is a step in the right direction.
2: That's, uh, I think, you know, once again, my my, my uh, brain just goes to different points, right? So I think you've mentioned quite a number of, uh, you know, important words. I think climate change is what I'm gravitating towards because everyone you know, is talking about climate change and everyone is talking about how important is it um, that we need to be mindful of our, our changing environment. So um, yeah, I, I think just to coming to you, Aidan, how important is, is uh, blue carbon quite exactly and how extensive is this blue carbon? Can we rely on it?
9: Yes. Uh, um it has been reported that it's blue carbon and seagrass in particular is, is going to prove to be a very effective mitigant um, currently and into the future of climate change. But there has been recent studies that have come out just to um, provide a word of caution as to how far we think seagrass can actually be effective because they're finding quite a lot of variability um, of a large and fine scales in terms of how much carbon is stored in specific locations around the world. So a lot of my research um, has focused on disentangling the drivers of this this variability, what might be causing it, whether it's present along our estuaries um, and we want to we want to understand the, this variability in the drivers that are to be able to provide um, people with the most accurate estimate of how effective seagrass will be uh, to mitigate climate change. So, I've worked along the western coast of South Africa, um, focusing on whether differences in, as Tian mentioned, the the sediment types can um, result in more carbon being accumulated at specific spots, or whether there's differences in the the size of the plants themselves that could be driving the um, carbon storage. And so far, what I've found is that there is quite a lot of variability in specific places, Um, particularly over large scales within an estuary, so over the kilometer scale. Um, But if we look at more finer scales within the same meadow, um, there seems to be low levels of variability. So it does differ and accounting for this is gonna be crucial if we're moving forward.
2: Yeah, I think just um, while on that point, uh, I'm I'm just thinking about the scalability of, uh, you know, these blue carbon credits within the South South African context. How feasible is that?
9: Yeah, so obviously one of the the main things that has come up recently and one of the buzzwords um, in society is carbon trading and whether we can use carbon trading for um, tackling climate change. And basically what carbon trading is is, Um, It's a way for companies and and business to offset their greenhouse gas emissions by the purchasing of carbon credits. And basically, a carbon credit is the equivalent of, or how it's produced, is it's the equivalent of one ton of carbon, which is avoided or removed from the atmosphere. So so ecosystems like Seagrass can provide these credits by capturing and storing carbon over long terms. Um, So we have seen... Projects particularly in or some in Africa as well in Kenya called um Vanga Blue Forest Project, where local communities have replanted seagrass. And then they've got independent um, researchers to come in and monitor how much carbon is being stored and the carbon that is stored can then be converted to credits and um, can generate income for these communities so i think that if we can get the legislation the policy in place and this if the science if the science is um if the policy is backed by informative science then these projects can be very effective for us in the future
2: yeah. Um, and I think as you say that, you know, when you look at policy versus science prof, um, you know, most of the time there's a paucity in that, you know, so there's gaps between communications and there's, you know, misinformation. Um, how, how much is, is, is that, you know, within the climate change context, you know, given how topical, uh, you know, climate change is at the moment?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, we need to get better at communicating about climate change. Um, not only at an academic level, but certainly much more for the general public. There is a lot of uncertainty. You know, science has some uncertainty behind it. Um, and I think, you know, without a clear cut answer, it becomes very, very difficult for people to make right decisions. The clear cut answer in this case is that climate change is real. You know, we're living in a changing planet. We can see it on a daily basis. People are losing their lives because of climate change. So, um, you know, so definitely strengthening our understanding and putting numbers, you know, in from a scientific perspective into policy, into legislation and into the everyday becomes really, really crucial.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I think on that note, uh, Dr. Nlovu, we you worked a lot um, on, uh, you know, your work revolves around microbiomes. Yes. Um, so what, how, what, what is the importance of microbiomes in climate change
3: um, conversations? So um, it comes from sort of like trying to disentangle the drivers of this blue carbon variability. So what we are trying to do is to try to understand how does the microbiome affect secrecy and whether does that have an effect on the sediment? Because the secrets, how it, in, it helps in terms of climate change medications that it stores carbon in the sediment. And so we know that in the sediment, there are microbiomes as well. And microbiomes mean there's small microorganisms, bacteria, care, and you can call, include fungi there. So we are trying to understand, do these microbiomes enhance the storage of this? Uh, carbon and what role do they play in also the decomposition of this uh, uh, carbon. So it's a, sort of like a mixed relationship and we're trying to sort of like disentangle that uh, in terms of sort of you can call it the good, the bad and the ugly. Mm-hmm. In the good, uh, we know there's lots of research that's been published that shows that the microbiome is actually good for the seagrass. Then you also have a little bit of bad that we know that also in this in this case that if those sediments that uh, uh, Tian and uh, Aiden work on, we know that if they're exposed, if these ecosystems are degraded, we know that that carbon dioxide becomes also lost or remineralized into the atmosphere. And the, these microorganisms are responsible for that. So we are trying to disentangle that, the role of the microbiome there. So we feel that it's really important. You can also think of the microbiome as an indicator for the the, the health or the state of the estuary. So if we're able to find those microbiomes and find and identify the species, the names, we do this using advanced sequencing approaches. We take that DNA, we sequence it, we are able to identify what, who those microbiomes are, like to say what is it. And by doing that, we can actually start to find what are the signatures of a healthy ecosystem or an un- unhealthy ecosystem. And that has implications for climate change. And now we can see over time, if we're comparing these things, to see whether climate change is an effect on the microbiome and also directly to the blue carbon that's stored there.
2: That is fantastic I, that you're able to actually, you know, get that much of detail uh, from just microbiomes. It's
3: true. It's a lot of work to be done. We still have a lot of unanswered questions, but we're sort of like trying to We're at the surface level. But I think with more work, it's not much that's been done. We have a student uh, in the funded lab, and essentially he found that there is a core microbiome. Uh, that is related to seagrasses, and this is different from salt marsh and uh, mangroves. So that means that there's a particular signature that's related to those organisms that's helping enhance. We don't know yet. We need to uh, further look into that into more detail. But we know we know that it must be enhancing the storage of those of the of the, of the carbon.
2: Yeah. um, Yeah. And I I think as you speak, I'm thinking back to the SDGs, right? So uh, SDG 13 and 14 speak directly to that climate change and marine uh, ecosystems. So, um, you know, when you're talking to just like a policymaker uh, and they ask you how stable um, is, uh, you know, I grasses in South Africa and uh, should we really just uh, put our money on that?
3: Well, I think, I mean when you're speaking to policymakers and this is where the the blue carbon the carbon credits comes into place. If you have a monetary value, if you assign a monetary value they'll be able to understand more. So I think assigning monetary values to this secret is using such things as blue carbon credits can actually help policymakers makers to understand the value. And as Tian has also spoken about the ecosystem services, I think the estimates that those ecosystem services, they go up to the billion rand or something. So assigning monetary values really gets to policy makers. So I think to go to, to go to your question, are they stable? Yes, we see that they're stable, but also I must also highlight that we are seeing that the systems are under threat and they're declining. So in sure. as much as the systems are stable, they are under threat from anthropogenic impacts. So something that we want to make, um, make policy makers aware, uh, policy makers aware of.
2: Sure, that is um, a mouthful. Um, so Emma, uh, I think Dr. Ndlovu has said, you know, mentioned that they are declining, um, you know, seagrass is declining and uh, that we need to actually monitor, you know, uh, seagrasses and how do we go about doing that?
4: Yeah, I guess that's where I come in with my genetic based monitoring tool. So more specifically to my research is focusing on trying to identify which animals lives in these ecosystems at a particular point in space and time. So we know seagrass meadows are biodiversity hotspots. So this means that seagrass provides a home to lots of different animals. And this can be anything from the smaller guys like the crabs and the shrimp to fish and even bigger mammals like the dugongs that we find in the seagrass in Mozambique. And I guess a very good local example would be that, um, in South Africa, our seagrass is an important home to a, a very proudly endemic animal, which is the charming little niceness seahorse. So without the seagrass, this little guy wouldn't be with us anymore. Sure. And, um, what we also see, which is very cool is that the younger fish, um, come in from the open season, they like to come and like hang out in the seagrass where they will find lots of food and they'll get nice, big and strong and then head their way back to the open ocean. So this process is really important because this is the way our coastal fisheries get replenished. So you can see not only is our seagrass uh, meadows important because they support biodiversity and our environments. But they are also economically important because they support our commercial fisheries. So now, how does my research fit into this? And broadly, I make use of this genetic tool, which I keep referring to, and that is that we find genetic material in the water that surrounds these seagrass meadows. And then by this, we can use um, the material to see who was where and when. And by using environmental DNA, I can track biodiversity over space and time without having to actually make the physical observation. And with this type of research, we can start building new and different ways of monitoring seagrass ecosystems. And I think environmental DNA is a really powerful monitoring tool that hopefully one day we will use for seagrass conservation and management right throughout South Africa. That is amazing. Um, and I,
2: I think if I can just get back to you, Prof, a little bit on that, um, you know, there's a mouthful that Emma has referred to, you know, so a lot of technical terms, <laughs> you know, so eDNA, DNA, biomonitoring, and, um, you know, so ecosystem services. So, you know, just in a very s- simple sort of terms, um, what is eDNA sequencing referred to? Okay, so I always like to say that, you know,
1: as you're moving through your day to day, you're losing bits of skin and you're losing bits of hair and other bits of yourself. And so you're essentially leaving a trail of where you've been Um, and every living organism you know, that moves through its environment, leaves these, signat- uh, these these signatures. So what we're able to do is we're able to detect these signatures. We, um, in Emma's case, we use water that we filter through a very, very small filter. Um, you can also use sediments or soils. There are people that sequence DNA from the air also um but essentially what you can do is you can collect that dna you concentrate it and you sequence it and basically what that to- what that gives you is lots of different genetic signatures of the dna that was in that environment and you know that's a really good technique to try and see who which organisms have been in that particular space um you know in the last in the last few hours and and obviously as a technique it's 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 very useful because lots of biodiversity Lots of animals are very small. They're cryptic. They like to hide. So we don't always see what's out there. Um, And that means if we have to, for example, make conservation decisions, we can't make those decisions because we don't know who lives where. So by using techniques such as environmental DNA metabarcoding, long words, but, you know, as academics love them, um, you know, we really begin to get a snapshot and provide baselines of biodiversity. And that's really, really crucial for conservation and management.
2: Yeah. I think this is amazing, I think for me you know, it's mind-blowing because, uh, you know, just as you know, we know more about the moon than, you know, than we do about, you know, the ocean and, uh, you know, eDNA is, is very fascinating and, you know, the potential of what it can do is, it's something that is mind boggling, you know. Yeah. So, so in South
1: Africa, you know, we've got over 13,000 described marine species, you know, of which about 2,000 are fish, sure. um, you know, but much of that marine biodiversity, we don't know, you know, it's been described from one or two places, so we really don't know what its, you know, how what what its geographic distributional ranges are. But importantly, there's also a whole bunch of new species that we haven't yet described. We're, we're picking up those genetic signatures, so there's also a lot of species discovery, which is really important.
2: That's amazing. Mm. That's awesome. And um, I know that, uh, Dr. Watson, (laughs) you, yeah, your PhD really focused on restoration and you've just given, you know, a very beautiful defense on, on, you know, restoration, its pros and cons. And yeah, just take us through some of the tools that are, you know, uh, important in, in restoration.
5: Sure. So everyone at home can also call me Katie. It's just a little bit of an in joke in our lab because Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes. So call me Dr. Watson at every opportunity. so I guess before I talk about restoration, it's, it's kind of more important to understand why we need to explore restoration, right? Like really get down into why are we seeing declines in our seagrass um, and why are they under threat? So we've got things like uh, coastal development, cause you know, everyone wants to live by the seaside, you know, especially our beautiful estuaries. So um, we've got that, we've got port developments. And then, you know, the more people you, that live along our coastlines, so that's putting increasing pressure on these systems in terms of pollution, um, agricultural runoff, so all those pesticides and herbicides that are going into the water there. Uh, also things like plastics, which another student in our lab is also researching. There's so much varied work going on, it's super <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so those are kind of more direct threats. Also think some of the fishing practices that go on in estuaries are also really damaging um which is unfortunate um but then yeah as we've already mentioned there's more indirect threats that we're seeing to our estuaries like climate change so uh we're seeing an increased prevalence of uh marine heat waves so um you know little seagrass guys are getting boiled out there (laughs) sometimes so that we'd call that a marine heat wave um other things like changes in salinity um and then uh, you know, then you start getting interacting interacting threats. Like if you've got your port development, then you've got more sediment in the water, and because seagrasses are plants, they still need to photosynthesize. So they aren't getting enough light to be able to actually um, sustain their own growth. So we've got all these really complex and interacting threats to these systems, and um, you know, sometimes management at a high level isn't always going to solve um, the issue of, of ecosystem decline, and we need to get more actively involved in, in restoring our ecosystems, and that goes for terrestrial and marine systems. So So that's really where my work comes in, which is really cool. So I've been working in Langebarn Lagoon. If if you don't know it, I would definitely check it out on Google. It's so beautiful. So what I've been doing is taking material from a a donor meadow, so a really stable, large meadow within the lagoon of, of seagrass, and essentially getting a spade, taking some of that seagrass storing it in little plant pots, putting it on a boat and moving it to a new site where we've got degraded meadows that are really under threat. And um, by planting that seagrass in that degraded site, the hope is that that will then stabilize the seagrass there and help it proliferate and grow. Um, And then we can start getting all these fantastic ecosystem services back. So that's
2: essentially what my work boils down to. It sounds fantastic, um, but I think as you speak, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, you know, you, seagrass is as you know everyone has really alluded to that is under the decline in South Africa, and um, my thing is uh, you know, you taking seagrass from a meadow that is thriving mm-hmm. and uh, putting it where you don't know or where you hope it will do well. Yeah. Um, so, talk to us about um, what are the concerns around that.
5: Yeah, so th- I mean, this is really the, the challenge. So other seagrass species throughout the world also produce seeds. So other researchers, like in the UK or Australia, are able to collect seeds en masse and, and grow the seeds on, and then put them back. So you have it So you're having less um, direct impact on on the donor meadow. But that's really where like Ben and Aidan's work starts to come in. And what's really exciting about working in a big and dynamic lab is that we can kind of piggyback off what each other are finding and, and expand on that. So I'll, I'll let Ben talk on his work with yeah. in vitro shoot propagation.
7: Yeah. So the issue you mentioned you're aware, of you are taking material from a healthy meadow and putting it somewhere where you don't know for sure that it's going to survive and do well. And so, and as Katie mentioned, um, the species of seagrass that we have here in South Africa does not produce seeds that often so we can't just go and collect the seeds grow them and then put them back which presents a unique challenge which could potentially be solved by um, it's called in vitro micropropagation which is just a fancy way of saying sure. growing plants in the lab under <laughs> controlled conditions <laughs> um, so the, a big benefit to this approach is that you can start off with a very small amount of seagrass tissue, just a few centimeters long. And then with the right conditions, which takes a lot of work to figure out, um, you are then able to grow them in the lab. And the hope is that we can get to a point where we are vigorously producing these plants in the lab and then they can be acclimated and hopefully eventually be transplanted back. So in that way, there's a very reduced negative effect on the donor meadow since so far um, the success of the more traditional transplanting methods has been mixed in South Africa. (laughs) Um, So this way, because we don't have insured success this way, we're just trying to minimize the impacts we're making on these donor meadows.
2: Yeah. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I think as, as you speak, uh, I, I'm just again, you know, this is a fantastic lab and they're doing amazing work. And, uh, Prof, I, I, am thinking, you know, as Ben has, you know, alluded that this is really rudimentary. It's, uh, you know, it's just uh, not being done before the tissue culturing. And, uh, you know, how prospective is that? Um, do you, are we hopeful that it's going to come correct? Well, Ben and a previous student,
1: um, Jess Stevens, and obviously our collaborator, uh, Dr. uh, Professor Makunga, you know, they really are kind of leading the South African charge on tissue culture. And what's actually really interesting is that because we have this, as Ben called it, a unique challenge, you know, which I think is really great um, wording. in in that we don't have, you know, a ready supply of donor material, it really forces you to think a little bit differently. And and hence, you know, our approaches of in vitro micropropagation that actually is really poorly researched globally, you know. So um, because we have these challenges, it also leads to really incredible opportunities, which is is super exciting, you know. And I've always said that working and living here in South Africa has presented so many opportunities. You know, it's an incredibly unique marine system to study, we call it our natural laboratory. You know, we have all these kind of very variable environments, but, but essentially, I think there's a lot that we can, as South African researchers, kind of, um, kind of educate globally. You know, because we do have this incredible marine system, yeah. um, and because it's very poorly researched. You know yeah. uh and for in under many different aspects so there's
2: always you know with challenge always comes opportunity awesome and um aiden i i know that you also you know just work with in situ versus lab work so um yeah i think katie did refer to you you know doing a lot of lab work as well so um if you can just you know explain to us what are the pros and cons of working in situ versus in the lab
9: Yes. Yeah, so my work is kind of um, with Ben and, and Katie fitted and they're all kind of fitting neatly in a puzzle together. And hopefully we can all build on each other's findings. Um, so basically, just to summarize, uh, summarize quickly that Katie's work, um, was uh, in-situ uh, in work where she took seagrass material from the lagoon and transported it to another site. So all keeping all the material within the same geographic area. Um, but uh, what I'm looking at is ex-situ restoration where I'm taking that material and then seeing if we can grow it for a period of time in the lab in the hopes that we can start off with a small amount of donor material and then hopefully it'll proliferate and accumulate um, large amounts of, of seagrass. Material and biomass in the lab so that we can then re transplant it um, back into its initial environment. So, that kind of um, we're looking at that to reduce the impacts of the that we have on the donor material because, of course, if we can take the least amount of seagrass possible, that's going to benefit um, not only the, the original meadow, but also provide, and if we can build it up, it prov- provides it with a lot more biomass to re transplant. So, that's kind of where my work has come in and, and fitting along on the chain.
2: Yeah. So that's amazing. Um, I think uh, as one of our guests was speaking, they mentioned the magic word, which is microplastics. And I think everyone knows how excited I get when I, you know, comes to this topic. Um, But also, you know, when we look at the threats around microplastics, um, you know, so they've been alluded to sedimentation, dig baiting. Um, So what is it? uh, What are some of the threats that we we should look into, um, Adian? that uh, are? Affecting microplastics.
9: Um, so I think that seagrasses, in particular, they, they form quite large uh, canopies. Um, in terms of their, their biomass, their, their leaf uh, systems can become quite extensive, and this provides—it actually is—it traps uh, microplastics, so it kind of forms this netting over the over the marine system, um, the marine shoreline, and that obviously it it kind of traps and sequ- and stores all these microplastics. So, um, as what, what was alluded to, um, one of our students um, Bianca is currently looking at how microplastics um, how they. How frequent and abundant they are within these systems, um, and it 's been amazing to see or, or quite shocking actually just the diversity of different types of microplastics that we find um, and yeah it 's quite alarming so it it does it is cause for concern, but it 's very fascinating work indeed
2: yeah um I, I think prof you you shared yesterday um, you know in our group you shared about you know the impacts of microplastics and you know the knowledge that we don 't have as to how much we are assimilating um, you know in terms of microplastics intake absolutely
1: you know so there 's obviously quite a lot of research for us to understand what the impacts of microplastics are on human health yeah um, you know from a biological perspective, people have looked at the presence of microplastics in in um, commercially you know exploited species such as fishes so you know we've hopefully most of you've kind of seen pictures of birds and, and turtles and, you know, cetaceans, so things such as whales that are eating microplastics. you know, and, and in the end they get so full of plastics that they're actually not able to feed anymore. But there's very, very little research um, that's focused on what is the impact on the health of, you know, coastal vegetated ecosystems. We just don't know. Yeah. There's been a sprinkling of research um, from the Northern Hemisphere that has looked at um, pollutants that... Kind of stick onto microplastics that are then concentrated in seagrass meadows which probably has a very negative impact on seagrass health yeah. but from a south african perspective we actually don't know at all what or we have yeah what what microplastics mean for for seagrass meadows what they mean for coastal um, marine ecosystems you know we know they're there but yeah. we don't know
2: what they're doing that's
1: really quite scary
2: yeah. Also, I think just sticking on threats um, on the, you know, just seagrasses, um, you know, when you're talking microplastics, with the knowledge that I do have, you know, of the, you know, surface area to volume ratio, how, you know, how large it is mm-hmm. that, you know, all the other chemicals or, you know, heavy metals and, and um, pesticides get to just attach to, you know, the nanoplastics and microplastics and be then assimilated to into the plants. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how, How how dire could that be really?
1: Well, Rafil, well, I'm going to ask you a question because you've asked us many. <laughs> tell us about your own research.
2: Oh, um, Which is on this very topic. It's on this very topic. Oh, <laughs> yes. I, I think this is my favorite. I think everybody can just like tell that I've been just like, you know, just poking this. But, um, I really, um, love, uh, you know, what research my background is in marine ecotoxicology. So, um, what we know about, um, you know, the heavy metals, for instance, is that you do get essential and non essential, uh, heavy metals, the essentials ones are those that are required by organisms in small concentrations and non essential ones are not required at all um, so you have you know iron, zinc, and copper those would be essentials, and you'll have you know just um, cobalt and uh you know or cadmium and all these other ones that are not really necessarily important and they can be very uh, poisonous to organisms in general. But the challenge comes when we have all these pesticides and all these mining companies that also cause added pressure onto the environment um, you know they get you know, get accumulation of these heavy metals into the system that also you know end up getting very poisonous and with the presence of microplastic you get the accumulation you know that causes biomagnification up the food chain so what would um, be assimilated by one small organism is that much more than you know what it, it would be in the natural so you know that is as a concern um, but i think what we find is is that um, you know, plants would deal uh, with various concentrations of chemicals differently. You know, for instance, some sea grasses would concentrate various heavy metals in the periphery or in their leaves rather than in their stems and rhizomes, just to deal with you know the anthropogenic impacts <laughs> that we, we we you know we are homo sapiens cause um, onto the world um, yeah so I think we've said uh, we've said a mouthful and I, I I was not expecting to be put on the on the spot here yeah? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah thank you for that uh, yeah for that it's perks of a prof um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I I think there's one person who's been very um, you know very uh, silent and Dr. Howell. Um I think you know, um, we've mentioned a lot of threats, and uh, you know, the sedimentation, ecotoxicology, microplastics, you know, all, of, you know, all of that. Um, you working um, a lot of the conser- on the conservation side, and you know, in genetics aspect of it. Um, so, what are some of the conservation, you know, mechanisms that we can, you know, just employ to try and, you know, just. Uh, be better humans
6: <laughs> that's quite a that's quite a broad uh, field to to investigate but i think I, I just want to take it back a step before we get to the conservation aspect and it's understanding how we can use genetics and genomics yeah. uh, to to assist in the conservation or the management of species so as our lab has demonstrated at this point we are quite a diverse bunch we have quite a diverse research interest and this diversity is also one of the major cornerstones of what I studied, which is population genetics. Um, And this diversity in natural populations is what allows them to be able to thrive and to adapt to changing environmental conditions. So that's one of the main areas that I'm interested in. But as time has gone on in the field of genetics, this field has evolved very, very rapidly. So within the last decade or so, we've shifted from looking at single sites in the genetic code of an organism or of a population And we've expanded that to look at the entire genetic backbone or or the genetic code of that individual and identify these mutations that are kind of signals or signatures of adaptions to local changes in the environment. So my research in the group is basically the construction or the assembly of a reference genome for capensis, which is one of the few Zostera species that currently doesn't have a a genome available. And it's... uh, uh, particular importance in a South African context, as this will provide a backbone for future research that wants to investigate how adaptable are our local populations? Are they going to be able to respond appropriately to climate change, increasing temperature? As Katie mentioned, it's not just temperature; it's salinity, it's pH. All of this is expected to change in the coming years. So, with the the genomic tools that we have at our disposal currently we can sort of provide a, a foothold for future research to to work off of this. So from our genome, we can ass- assess all the populations that occur along the South African coast and determine what the diversity of these populations are and their ability to adapt to to the changing environment. And this will then be useful in informing uh, policymakers or or management um, perspectives, I guess, to to accurately and effectively uh, conserve this this species which serves a number of important uh, services to the ecosystem.
2: That's amazing. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, just you've really just taken us back to, you know, <laughs> the genomes and genetics and, and, and really just trying, you know, to understand. I know there's a lot to unpack there. And I think just taking this opportunity to say whoever really wants to know more about our guests, um, you know, they will be on our website and you can, you know, get a hold of them and, and get in touch with them. And, um, I think just taking it back to you, Prof. Um, you know, just uh, talking about conservation and uh, communication with management is mm-hmm. quite important you know i think earlier on we, tra- we we touched on what um, you know the science communication how important it is that we don't lose you know um, the nuances in you know in translation so what are what is like the one message that is quite important that you can communicate to management right now uh, you know be it um, you know ministers or being decision makers or policy makers mm-hmm. that they need to, to know about about um, the importance of seagrasses. Okay. I think if you give me just one message, which is very, very difficult as you
1: all know, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this is complex, would be to say that if we do not prevent the loss of seagrasses in South Africa, everybody loses. Biodiversity loses and people lose. So, what do we need to do? Well, our research shows, you know, especially our genetic, genomic research shows that pretty much every seagrass population in every estuary has its own genetic signatures. So, you know, our potential for moving seagrasses between estuaries is probably very limited, um, and that basically means is that we need to protect every single populations of seagrass. We only have 37. Sure. It's not very much. There's only a few hectares of seagrass left out there. So once it's gone, it's gone. So we really need to be looking much more closely at, um, at the policy and at the legislation, um, and the powers that allow for the conservation of coastal vegetated ecosystems. But, you know, it gets really complex because it's not just the pressures in an estuary, you know, so it's not just people living around the estuary. A lot of the pressures come from upstream, so people taking water for farming, taking water for everyday use, you know, water quality, that stuff doesn't necessarily happen where the sea grasses are. It can happen many kilometres upstream. So, you know, a much um, policy that looks a much more integrated um, approach to how we use water, to how water reaches estuaries and flows into the sea, is really, really crucial. But we need to account for seagrass populations in conservation and in management. There are only two populations currently that have some form of protection out of out of the thirty-seven, yeah. and and there the there those meadows just happen to be in protected areas. There isn't a single targeted conservation action for zostra capensis in South Africa, so I'm really really hoping that you know as we provide a lot of the research that we can support evidence-based decision making. You know where we can actually say, well, this is how much seagrass is worth. This is how much we've lost, and this is kind of the the end effect for for everybody.
2: Incredible, um, you know. Clearly, 45 minutes is not enough to actually cover everything. And um, I think we've just flown through it. And, uh, yeah, so thanks to everyone for just coming through and sharing the exciting work that you do. And, uh, yeah, hopefully you just uh, keep doing what you're doing. You, you guys are you know, just champions in my, in my eyes. <laughs> and, yeah, I think just on that note, what is, what is next for C-Store, uh, Prof?
1: Yo, there's a lot more. <laughs> There's more than one point, if you aware <laughs> there's more than one so point I think if but if I had to choose something to focus on for the next few years because we've really beginning to understand the basic biology um, you know some of the basic impacts we, we the restoration we're really beginning to get a handle on. I think the next large challenge is that we take that information and we get much better at understanding what the future climate change impacts might be on the distribution not only of seagrasses but of mangroves and salt marshes these really important blue carbon ecosystems in south africa so how do we account for sea level rise for example you know if you've got houses on one at one end of the seagrass distribution and you've got a rising sea level at the other what does it mean where does seagrass go yeah so you know it's really about thinking um, of seagrass, and I really like this term, not nature-based solution, but a nature-inclusive solution, you know, so that we as, yeah. as humanity work with nature and that we include nature in our everyday conservation and management so that we really begin to look at, you know, living and utilising nature inclusively. Um, so I think that's really the next big thing is how do we
2: make nature-inclusive solutions for seagrasses and, and South African coastlines couldn't have said it better myself so yeah <laughs> i think if you just come join the fund the Raiden and project c store and uh yeah you'll have uh, all the fun you want to have uh so yeah just really excited to have you guys here thank you so much for like taking time out of your busy schedules and just uh yeah communicating with the public about some of the f- fantastic things that you do Ciao.